0: Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, we're going to be talking pork today. In fact, specifically, we'll be talking Hormel. And when I was growing up and went out west with my boyfriend at 18 in the um, van, uh, we lived a lot on Hormel products, including Spam and Dinty Moore beef stew, um, two of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten. But anyway, um, so my author, <laughs> my guest today is Ted Genoese. He is an editor-at-large at on Earth, which is the magazine for the Natural Resources Defense Fund. He is also a contributor to any number of other magazines, such as The Atlantic, the Bloomberg Business Week, Harper's, Mother Jones, The New Republic, and Outside. His book, The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food, is forthcoming from HarperCollins in October. Welcome to the program. Uh, Ted, it's really a pleasure to have you on here, and your articles were fantastic.
2: Thanks very much, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, so you wrote a series of articles for a lot of different um, venues, actually, about the Hormel Empire. And I, I thought it was funny that it was Hormel originally, when Jay Hormel started the company, he sounded like a pretty good guy, and then it sort of morphed into Hormel as um, as the empire grew and the and the family lost control. So the most recent article uh, that came out in um, on Earth just this month um, was about uh, the impact of on water supplies in Jackson, Minnesota, from the local pork uh, plant or the pork uh, confined area feeding operation. Is that a vertically integrated plant? I was like, it's Where they make spam so it's a cut processor right
2: that's right so so what you're dealing with there um in in minnesota is uh the headquarters for an an organization called new fashion pork Mm -hmm. and they're one of the big pork suppliers for hormel um they're where they're situated is is sort of right along the highway um uh, just west of of austin minnesota where the big uh processing plant is for hormel right but, but new fashion Pork has uh hog barns, so the, the the facilities where they where they breed and then uh raise piglets um spread out all over the midwest really from wyoming to indiana but the biggest concentration of their uh, hog facilities is in is in northern Iowa, which uh, has really to do with, with having sort of central proximity both to that Austin plant in Minnesota and to the Fremont plant in Nebraska, the two main spam plants in the country. Mm-hmm. And also, um, they're focused there because uh, Iowa has loosened some of the strictures that other Midwestern states have on the building of these sorts of confinements.
1: Mm-hmm. Because most states uh, don't really uh favor the idea of vertical integration, something we talked about a lot last week with um, Chris Leonard about the meat racket and your new book that's going to be coming out in October is sort of the pork story of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, although I have to say your books are very different and we 'll talk about that later in the program I mean at least your articles are very different from the kind of stuff that um, that Chris was covering um, but so when you did this article about the water quality, this is a pork processing plant that uh, has a lot of confined areas I mean, that, that houses a lot of pigs before they go to slaughter. So needless to say, there's a huge amount of waste and they're processing sure. thousands of pigs a day. Um, what, what happened? What, what made you interested in, in uh, investigating the water situation there and what has been the impact of this plant on the local water supplies?
2: Sure, yeah. Well, I'm based in Lincoln, Nebraska, and so um, this is its an issue that is uh, of regional concern. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, loosening the vertical integration laws here in Nebraska, and there's been, um, as sort of part of that rhetoric, um, especially out of the, the Farm Bureau here um, and out of the, the, the Pork Producers Association. There's been this talk of having to keep up with Iowa, um, that that Iowa has seen this this incredible boom in hog production, and that this is a, a missed economic economic opportunity in Nebraska. Um, so it was it it caught my attention when uh, it started happening last May and all through the summer, that the Des Moines Waterworks was announcing that the the levels of nitrates, um, in particular, and also E. coli at some points, were so high that the that the water in much of the area of the state was not safe to drink, and the the waterworks was engaged in all sorts of heroic measures to try to uh, mitigate the problems with the water that was coming in at their intake, um, and and really they. For, for about a hundred days uh, in a row, they were, they were seeing levels of nitrates that were, that were twice and sometimes almost tripled the allowable levels under the Clean Water Act. And seeing that happening, I, I wanted to go see them and, and talk to them about what was going on. And they, they were remarkably unequivocal. I mean, they said this is, this is the direct result of, of this sort of unbridled growth of the the hog industry and and to a certain extent the beef industry in Iowa and then the use of that waste that's produced by by those industries as fertilizer uh, which has really been the way that the industry's gotten a foothold with uh, with uh, row crop producers to say if you let us come in we'll provide you with inexpensive fertilizer mm-hmm. um, but it, what it done is, is really caused a brand new problem with water quality.
1: And that would be the nitrate quality or the E. coli or both? Because I'm We're, not sure how the nitrate, how do the nitrates fit into this? Um, because I think of that as a cro- row crop fertilizer, not something that would be um, is that in pig shit and cow shit because yes, they're it eating is. corn? <laughs> it's,
2: well, it, it's <laughs> we can say shit on this
1: area. On this area. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is naturally occurring there um, and 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 so when when they inject the uh the, the the manure into the subsoil um the the whole idea is to is to raise the nitrate level of the soil to use the um to to refresh the the nitrates that have been taken up by the last year's uh row crops mm-hmm. especially corn in Iowa um the issue is that as the, there's been a number of years of drought in Iowa and the rest of the Midwest, that the corn and other crops are not taking up as much nitrogen as they have in the past. And so it's it's in the soil more, but also as the soil is hard from from this drought, from drought. it's highly erodible. Right. And so when we do get heavy spring rains, um, the, all of that manure is is Basically, sitting at the at the subsoil, and when we get rains that are hard enough for the topsoil to be washed away, it carries that with it, and it just goes straight into the
1: waterways. Mm-hmm. Actually, Paul Greenberg, and I'm sure you know you know him. Um, I, we I had him on a few months ago to talk about the um, effluent from farms that is polluting the Mississippi, and obviously you're talking about the same thing, polluting the major rivers out in the Nebraska and Iowa area. What rivers are those, by the way, since I don't know anything about American geography?
2: Right. So, <laughs> in in Iowa in particular, we're looking at the, the Raccoon River watershed. Raccoon, and, that's right. And, and the Des Moines River watershed, both mm-hmm. of which are major tributaries to the, to the Mississippi River. And as it happens, um, they are now the number one and number two nitrate contributors to the Mississippi. So Incredible it's directly related. This is this is where it's coming from.
1: And the nitrates are what just to refresh people's memory, nitrates are what cause algae blooms which then suffocate fish and natural wildlife in waterways, is that right?
2: Exactly. Okay. And 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 the you know the other significant problem is that in the same way that, that the the nitrates the concern about nitrates in the Mississippi River and uh, especially now uh, along the Gulf Coast is that the the nitrates essentially uh, starve the oxygen out of the water mm-hmm. so that it's impossible for um, for anything that depends on oxygen to survive there. So you have this giant dead zone that exists now around the, the Mississippi River Delta in, on the Gulf Coast.
1: That's right, yeah.
2: Um, the same thing happens if you drink water that is high in nitrates. Um, ah. It interferes with, with your body's ability to uptake oxygen. And this is the reason that, that there's a Great deal of concern, especially for children drinking um, water that's high in nitrate levels. It causes something that's called blue baby syndrome, which is exactly as it as it sounds mm-hmm. um, that that children can actually turn blue from lack of oxygen, mm-hmm. um, and it's 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 happening. They're basically suffocating from the inside.
1: Oh my God, Ted, that is like the
2: that's <laughs> yeah, horrifying. So and, tell and-
1: me, <clears throat> so. There is a governor there named Governor Brandstad who seems to absolutely love um, large-scale agriculture yeah. and has waved away any concerns such as the ones you mentioned about blue babies and E. coli in the water system and is indeed at a certain point um, basically eliminated. Uh, you know what looked like half of the uh, Department of Natural Resources personnel who were in charge of testing water quality and issuing summonses and recommendations and so forth. Has that uh, been rolled back? in the wake of that 100 days of pollution where people couldn't drink the water or are they just yeah. still carrying yeah. on business as usual?
2: Well, the the EPA, and once the, there was this 100-day period and the people from the Des Moines Water Works um, uh, asked for and were granted a meeting with the EPA where they said, you know, look, there's there's going to come a point here when we're not able to, to process all of the, the, the nitrates out of the water and... and will be supplying water that's unsafe um, to roughly, you know, one in five people in the state. Um, and if you consider, too, uh, just as a quick aside, I mean, the Des Moines Water Works has the most advanced system in the state, and they're monitoring the water that's coming in from the watershed all the way up to their northern border. So think of what's happening to the people who are in small towns where the water receives, receives less processing, people who are drinking from wells. That sort of thing. Um, It's really um, the bellwether more than than the problem itself. I mean, they're they're indicating that there is uh, the statewide problem with Mm -hmm. with with the level of nitrates, and so at that point, the EPA did say, "Well, something has to be done," and they and they were uh, quite critical of of uh, how the state had been handling all of this, Um, but. To my eye, it doesn't really appear that the EPA is doing anything more than than they had insisted that that half of the um, the inspectors that had been uh, laid off or, or their positions had been eliminated by the DNR that half of those positions be recreated. Um, but they've been filled by people who are um, fairly inexperienced, new to this. Um, and, and the DNR itself is uh, very much under the control of, of big agriculture in the state. And maybe most outrageously, the the Environmental Protection Council um, in the state, which is largely made up of, of appointees by the governor, is now almost entirely um, populated with people who are not just uh, friendly to big agriculture, but are, are Deeply, deeply invested. I mean, among Branstead's appointees were someone who was a, a former president of the Iowa Pork Producers Council, um, someone who's the president of a company that that is the largest builder of of hog confinements in the state. Um, he appointed a, a former member of the the Iowa House, whose main uh, claim to fame is having loosened the laws uh, governing the application of manure. Um, so there's a, there's a very obvious, uh, goal here. And, um, and it is a state to poison the entire population of the state. Yeah. I mean, well, (laughs) and it's, it's, it's the, the, the the whole state is so beholden to big ag at this point Mm -hmm. that, um, that it's sort of divided between people who see this as, uh, as an opportunity for, for, uh, quick economic development and then the people who who are concerned about that but feel uh, f- uh, frightened frankly of, of speaking out against these forces because they have such power and such reach in the state.
1: Well, what what could pork producers actually do to diminish their impact on water and soil? I mean, I, I didn't really see anything in your article that suggested that there were ways, you know, for remediation. I mean, you made that, you described that situation in which one farmer protested um, the building of a new plant. And so they simply moved it 100 yards away, where it was actually even yeah. closer to another tributary to the Des Moines River. And You know, it's like, okay, you know, it's not in my backyard now, so I don't need to worry about it. And I mean, I feel like um, there must be some ways for these pork producers To um, mitigate some of this, Um, for instance, the Cargill plant that I visited in Fort Collins has an incredibly complex and efficient um, wastewater treatment plant on site. And they do a great job of cleaning the water. I don't know quite what they do with all of that um, solids, but I think they have these like they um, have these microbe eating, you know, Sort of fermentation tanks, essentially, pretty much how we deal with wastewater here in New York City. It's it's very much the same kind of system. That's not that there's nobody who's doing that with um, in Iowa with these pork producing facilities.
2: Well, there are um, digesters that exist that are meant to take out um, some of the, especially some of the harmful gases that that can off gas when when manure is applied. The problem is that that. The nitrates are exactly what the the row crop farmers are after. They're looking to replace the nitrogen in the soil, and so uh, it's not really in their interest to try to process those those compounds out. Hmm. The the to me the, the the bigger issue is is how uh, these animals are raised in such intense concentration, um, and how that. Then creates a situation where the manure is present in such concentration, um, and not surprisingly, uh, the, the the hog producers don't want to have to truck the waste over large distances, and um, and frankly, it wouldn't be ideal because there are spills even when they're they're moving it over short distances. Sure. So, you know, to me, the 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 real solution to all of this is to have the, the the raising of of animals be spread out as it, as it was um, really up until these confinements became um, sort of the next step in in big agriculture in the 1970s and I, I know that that it's always the the response out of the industry that you simply cannot. Uh, raise enough animals to feed everyone if they're not raised uh, under these conditions. But I I really, I guess, I don't believe that that's true. (laughs) And I also, at this point, am am dubious of the fact that, that, you know, the argument is often made that this is what we do to assure inexpensive food for the American public. Yes. But the reality is that almost... uh, well, a high percentage of the of the pork that's being raised in some of these confinements in, in Iowa is headed overseas and specifically to Asia. China is the big growth market that everybody in the pork industry is after. Hormel mm-hmm. or, has just announced that they're opening their third spam plant um, in Dubuque, Iowa, and in their announcement they said that, that everything that would come out of the Dubuque processing plant would be headed to, to Asia, um, so this is this is not, as far as I'm concerned, about controlling food prices for Americans, about feeding poor Americans who need inexpensive food. This is about uh, increasing production uh, at all costs in order to exploit an emerging market.
1: Hmm. I actually kind of disagree with you, but we're going to take a thirty-second sponsor drop, and then we'll come back and talk about this more. Because, I, 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 you know, of course, your points are very valid, and I, you know, obviously, I. But I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate when we come right back.
0: This is Chris Howell from Kane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain. Above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com.
1: We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. On the phone with me is journalist Ted Genoves. Um He is the author of the most recently published... Um, article for On Earth magazine, the magazine of the Natural Resources Defense Fund, and this, this particular article. What was the name of it? Hog Wild. Yeah, okay. I loved that. That was the perfect title. Um, but Chris is, I mean, uh, Ted is, is very well versed in um, sort of the pork industry in general, which is one of the reasons why we're going to be best friends from now on. Um, so now you were just saying to me that you think that raising pork for export purposes um, is not viable and or is not desirable. And I need to point out to you that about 6% of our GDP is raised by animal livestock exports. So it's not really something that we can abandon. Right. And also I want to point out that it employs quite a few people, more people than, um, than would be otherwise if we did not have these pork-producing plants. So there is that argument to be made, Ted.
2: Yeah. Right? Well, and certainly that argument is made, and, and the, the the goal is to... Is to increase that um, that export market and and Hormel and obviously Smithfield, which is mm-hmm. now
1: now um, Shuanghui. Yeah,
2: you that's know, exactly right. Um, <laughs> um, that's uh, it, it, that's evidence of of the degree to which um, the Asian market is is sort of the 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 driving force in the yeah. pork industry right now. Absolutely. Um, I guess what I have concerns about is. Um, is seeing the, the sort of pending crisis with uh, Iowa's water um, putting the, the health of people um, at risk in the name of trying to increase, a, you know, a, a, an export market. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just, I, I guess I still hold on to the belief that there, there has to be a better way to do this than that.
1: Well, I think there are better ways to do it, and I think that, um, as uh, consumers make more of a fuss, industry will follow along. I just had a fascinating conversation with the American Meat Institute yeah. about how, <clears throat> you know, they are increasing their production of, you know, uh, specialty, you know, non, you know, pastured uh, beef and, and uh, you know, antibiotic-free, blah, blah, blah. Of course, we all know that that's a very, very small fraction of their, but that's, that's their narrative now. You know, that's, that's what they're saying they're doing. And, you know, it's because consumers are demanding it, so they're at least paying lip service to it now. But to go back to the way we raise animals, I mean, you know, of course I don't think confined area feeding operations are ideal, but I also see that in many ways they are extremely efficient. And um, given the fact that we have a dwindling amount of land available, uh, I I sort of think there's no answer but that. It just has to be improved, and I think it can be improved. Um, The cattle industry, I think, is a good example of, of an industry that has improved, uh, in that regard. Um, and of course, pork and chicken poultry are just appallingly behind the times. And I think that the the need to conserve our water and to save our water supply uh, will become paramount. And I think that the government will eventually have to regulate these guys, uh, you know, sooner rather than later, just for the reasons that you just described that there'll be blue babies. I mean, yeah. even if you work for Hormel, you're still not going to want your kid to turn blue right?
2: I, I agree. I <laughs> and agree.
1: One thing I wanted to ask you is if people can't drink the water, if the water becomes, you know, unpotable, um, do the pork producers, are they then going to be obliged to supply water as they did in Pennsylvania, for example, with the people whose where fracking interrupted their water supply and the oil companies had to come in and, and deliver water?
2: Well, there's really been no discussion about what the water replacement system would be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the pork producers right now um, are insistent that this is not. Uh, it, it's not. It's not their fault. Um, they're. they're <laughs> How claiming- do they say
1: that though, Ted? How can they say it's not our fault when it's shit and nitrate?
2: Right. Well, and <laughs> and there are there are fairly simple tests that are possible to indicate you know what animals the the waste that's in the water came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the answer is that the uh, that the government that the state government in Iowa has been discouraged. Sort of from the top down, from doing those sorts of tests mm-hmm. to assess the source of uh, the contamination. Um, but the other more simple argument is uh, yes, we have a lot of waste that is produced by these hogs, but when it is in our possession, we keep it in, con- in containment pits that are regularly inspected and are excellent at preventing leaks. Um, and then when we sell it it is up to the row crop farmers to apply it properly and and really the blame is shifted to the corn producers Mm -hmm. and saying well they're over applying it or misapplying it and um and it's essentially it's their fault not ours
1: you know it's uh, because it sort of it parallels the chicken industry at a certain level um that it's not the producer's problem it's sort of in that case, in the chicken industry, it's like whoever the contract grower is, it's their problem. In other words, these companies somehow figure out how to not to own their own shit. And yep. it's just amazing to me. So in the case of the pork, you, you have contract growers increasingly, but... Um, I guess they aren't raising as many hogs as, say, somebody who invests in a chicken house. How does that work? Do they have the same kind of contract
2: they do. They, growing they,
1: thing where they're ha- they have thirteen or 1,500 hogs? And in that case, does the farmer own the shit or does the company own the shit?
2: Well, <laughs> so, the, so the people who are actually running these barns are, are almost always employees of, of a larger contract mm-hmm. grower at this point. Right. Right. Um, it's, and, and in the case of this story, it, that, that's, you know, the people who work for New Fashion Pork, um, and then New Fashion Pork supplies the hogs. About half of their hogs go to Hormel. The other right. half go to uh, a consortium that they belong to that is called Triumph Foods that produces, um, that, that butchers and produces hogs on their own and primarily for an Asian market. Mm. And so. Um, there's this kind of intricate system that exists, um, and, it, and you're exactly right that that in many ways it is constructed to shift the overhead costs away from uh, the, the large corporations and onto the contract growers. But it also means that if something goes wrong at a specific barn, if, if there's a, a containment pit that ruptures and... Um, causes a spill, if there's uh, an instance of animal abuse that is exposed, that the company can very quickly say, that's not us, that's somebody that we're contracting with. Mm -hmm. And we're horrified, just like you are, and we're terminating the contract.
1: Right, and that's another whole story. Um, I because we only have about fifteen minutes left. I there's so much other stuff I wanted to get to because of all of those articles which I read most assiduously. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're an excellent writer. It was, you know, it was a beautiful when you read all of those articles at once. And uh, presumably, those are going to be more or less the structure of your book. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you get a really great uh, overview of the industry. It was very very instructive to me. So I wanted to move on and talk a little bit about hemp, which is the yep. hazard. Okay. Sorry. I'm going to have a hard time remembering what the, but it's, but it's, it's HACCP on steroids essentially. That's
2: right. Like, that's exactly yeah. right. So it's,
1: food it's... safety, worker injuries and hemp. Can you remind me of what hazard, uh, what it I forgot what hemp stands for now.
2: Yeah. So I think I'd know so, by now. So, um, one of the things that that I I love about this is that the, the meat inspectors always say that that HACCP, which is the Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points uh, system, right. They always say that that stands for "Have a cup of coffee and pray."
1: No, uh, I have never heard that.
2: Really? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's always their line. Um, so
1: that's horrible
2: uh, because th- there are these these big breaks that exist between the inspections, and so they're saying. You know, you go have a cup of coffee, coffee, and pray that nothing happens while yeah. you're on. So, um, it is it is HACCP. It's, it's it's hazard analysis and critical control points inspection model program.
0: That's right. Um, Thank you.
2: Which becomes HIMP. Yeah. Um, and the basic idea is that um, that the, the the meat industry as a whole was arguing that it, it was no longer necessary. To inspect every single carcass as it as it goes through production.
1: Indeed, that, they claim it's incredibly inefficient. And why are we still using a system that was instigate, in, implica- you know, instigated in uh, I don't know what the '60s or something like that, or '70s? Like we're way behind the curve on technology. Bikes continuing to use HACCP as opposed as opposed to hemp.
2: Well, and and the idea is that you know that you can do this this. Simple microbiological testing that will tell you if there is is carcass contamination anywhere uh, along along the chain. The problem is that that it's really spot checking um, by the government, and then relying on the companies to do the full self inspection. That the, the the argument out of the meat industry is that we'll check all of the carcasses to make sure that there are no obvious physical deformities. That right, they don't like have, they don't
1: have tumors, tumors they don't or, have, uh, exactly. you know, fecal matter, they don't have uh, tuberculosis.
2: Exactly. And and then the, we'll just have the USDA do the spot check to to make sure that there's no microbiological contamination right. that, that is coming from uh, equipment that hasn't been properly cleaned.
1: Or that there's just, you know, the animal has not been eviscerated correctly and there's... Right fecal God. matter I, we actually I did a couple programs about hemp with uh, Amanda Hitt, who I was happy to see yep. you quote yep. I love amanda she's one of my favorite guests ever yep. um, so one of the things that was that that all should be brought up about hemp is that not only do they take inspectors usda inspectors off of the line and put them at the end to do microbial swabbing, but they also ratchet up the chain speed, meaning the number of animals per minute or per hour that are uh, processed let's talk a little bit about what that does. Um, to worker safety, and then let's explore that fantastic story about the brain mist and the head table, which I was so yeah. glad that you really like opened that up for me because that story essentially disappeared from the news
2: yeah well that's um, that that's the case that really got me started on a bet um, so, <laughs> so, so, so the deal with 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 hemp as you said and how it relates to line speed is the notion is that if uh if the company is not limited by the number of inspectors that have to be on the line um if all of the, the testing is being done at the end as you say um then then essentially the line can be run as fast as as possible and the this this pilot program hemp was supposed to be a pilot it's been running now for uh, for a, over a decade
0: oh yeah
2: um there were five pork plants that were allowed to, to run this experiment. And fascinatingly, uh, the, the quality pork processors plant, which is the, the cut-and-kill operation for Hormel in Austin, and then the, the Fremont uh, Hormel plant were two of the original five. And a third of them, the Farmer John uh, cut-and-kill operation in Vernon, California, uh, Hormel bought as soon as they were accepted into the hemp program. Uh huh.
1: Interesting. Oh my so, God, I love that.
2: So three of the five uh, plants that are, are being tested are the three kill floors that, that Hormel uses to, to supply all of their hogs. So what they were able to do is essentially um, crank up the, the line speed by about 20% faster than any of the other processing plants in the country. And uh, what that, what that has done is, is both uh, land the 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 two big uh, cut and kill operations, the one in Austin, the one in Fremont, in the group of of the ten uh, highest food safety uh, violators in in the country, um, according to the food secu- uh, food safety and inspection service's own in- uh, study of all of this. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, it's created exactly what you would expect: um, it, all sorts of uh, of worker safety issues um, from trying to work so quickly um, as as the line speed is constantly increasing.
1: Right. And and let's remember that these people are wielding incredibly sharp knives which they have to sharpen. I've seen it. I mean they sharpen them virtually between every cut. Yeah. So they're incredibly sharp, they're moving incredibly fast. The animals themselves are moving on c- conveyor belts and the pieces that a lot of these guys are working with are very big and heavy. Yeah. So the opportunity for injury is huge and I think most workplace injuries do occur in the meat industry, am I right?
2: Yeah, it's still, it, I think it's number three uh, on OSHA's list of the, mm. the most dangerous workplaces, yes. Um, and and certainly the strangest of the things that has emerged from this uh, increased line speed was the case that you were talking about that occurred at Quality Pork in, in Austin, Minnesota, mm-hmm. when uh, the it appears that the increased speed of the line um, created a situation in the harvesting of brains.
1: Instead they, of cornstarch? Why? Yeah.
2: It's, <laughs> and, and, it's, it's, and so Ew. it is, but the, the, the old system of harvesting the brains, of splitting it, the, the skull and taking the brains out, simply wasn't fast enough to keep up with the speed of the sure. line. So they devised a system uh, that was pressurized air that would blast into uh, the brain cavities, cavity and liquefy the brain and they would pour the brains out into a catch bucket. Um, <laughs> like my engineer is stuff. like
1: gagging in the bucket. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, and um, well, everyone will appreciate that there, there was a running debate, uh, but, uh, among the people who worked at that station about whether what came out looked more like Pepto Bismol or a strawberry milkshake. Ew! <laughs> so that's what you had. The problem is that while the air was lasting and liquefying the brains, it it was actually also aerosolizing a small amount of brain tissue, um, and the workers at that station and its surrounding stations were inhaling uh, the brain matter, and it triggered an autoimmune response that caused a really severe neurological disorder among a number of the workers at the plant, uh, some of whom sustained permanent spinal and brain damage from from doing
1: that work. Incredible. Yeah. And I mean, of course it's the usual story of like, no, you didn't get it here or let's, you know, why did not you just take 20 grand and shut up and go away? <laughs> Exactly. I, mean, I mean, and then, I mean, we actually, we have, we could do another entire program about this and maybe we should schedule that for a few weeks uh, down yeah. the road because we haven't gotten into any of the immigration and worker issues, uh, union busting, all of the stuff that I, you know, that sort of go part hand in glove um, with the ability of a plant to be able to basically dismiss somebody whose life has just been ruined and they've just been permanently disabled. Um and I'd be curious, what, what was the response? Describe the response of, of um, the plant uh, in terms of because um, you, you went into some depth with the nurse, I think she was, Carol. Right. Uh yeah. What was her response to these people? Like, how did she um, explain it away? And what did they do to protect workers afterwards?
2: Well, and so they, they stopped harvesting brains altogether at, at, at Hormel plants. Um, but the but the treatment of the workers um, at first, when the, there was this, uh, the prognosis was that being removed from the exposure that everyone re- would recover, there was a great deal of, of empathy and sort of like, well, we'll help these people um, through this brief period before they're back to full capacity at the line. When it turned out that, that this was not so simple to recover from, and that in fact there were a number of people who had permanent. Uh, injuries from all of this, the company took a much harder line. Um, and and there were efforts made to, first of all, to, to as you said, question the, the immigration status of a number of workers who then either quit or were fired um, when they admitted that they were undocumented. Um, and then some of the, the workers who had legal status were... Actually, followed by private investigators um, who were attempting to discredit their claims, and and a lot of aggressive maneuvers were made to to challenge uh, to challenge their claims with the insurance company because the insurance company had ruled that that because of the nature of this uh, injury that that the deductible would be extremely high. It was, it was bound to be millions of dollars for the company, and so. They made every effort to discredit the people who who I mean it's a sort of remarkable thing I mean the people who were going to neurologists at the Mayo clinic and and had you know medical tests that indicated that they were very very ill um, that they were still having a hard time uh, getting their insurance claims processed
1: astonishing. Um, Ted, unfortunately, I think we should wrap it up because I want to give you a few minutes to talk about your book um, and give us uh, the sense of what else we can expect to find in it when it comes out in October. And also to if you have a website, let's promote it. Let's promote your article, et cetera, et cetera. So let's let's wrap sure. up this part of the thing and talk about what you what 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 happened with this book. And, you know, it's coming out in October. What else is going to be in it?
2: Well, let The. Focus of the book is really looking at the hemp program, as we discussed. What happened when, when Hormel was able to run uh, its three kill operations at twenty percent higher line speeds, and the answer is is everything that we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that that it created worker safety issues, that it created food safety issues, um, that it that it increased environmental impacts on the, the hog. Uh, farming side of the operation, there were also um, instances of animal abuse. The, the first convictions for uh, for animal abuse on any Midwestern farm came out of a Hormel farm during the, the period of of increased production. Um, and then, of course, there were all of the the problems that came um, out of of anti-immigrant sentiment and and um, a kind of a uh, stark example in Fremont, Nebraska, where, where the town um, is still engaged in a battle trying to keep an ordinance on the books that would make it illegal to
1: employ or rent to undocumented workers in, in the city. That blew my mind, actually. And then there was another thing that where you say, you and I'm sorry to interrupt you because I know you want to... <laughs> it's just, it's like, oh, um, ahead. So one of your um, quotes was a, a guy named uh, Hart sent a letter to the editor of the Fremont Tribune. The more I look around Fremont, read the paper, talk to people, the more I'm sickened by what's happening, it disgusts and angers me that the city is being destroyed by the greed of Hormel, Fremont beef, and like-minded places. So it's really a very... It's like a really bizarre dichotomy between the people who support and work for... Uh, these large companies, uh, which obviously make the towns viable. And then the people who hate the immigrant labor that's come in to take over the, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you don't even know where, which way to look like who's, who's on whose side here. Cause you would right. think, uh, you know, that somehow, uh, there'd be a little bit more of a, I don't know, meeting of the minds between townspeople You're, and immigrants,
2: but well, it has made very strange allies and strange enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, as, as the company was successful um, over the last generation at um, employing more and more undocumented workers and, and depressing wages at the same time, right, um, it, it has become a situation where the people in these Hormel towns feel less and less a part of... It's a long-time residents feel less a part of the company and feel sure. um, a lot of anger uh, toward them, abandoned by them. Well,
1: abandoned by the company, and then there's an influx of immigration that they feel is taking their jobs away. But their jobs they don't want anyway because the company has suppressed unionization so effectively. Oh, exactly. And they didn't support the unions themselves, obviously, sufficiently.
2: Well, and the, the I mean the unions. Um, the unions have their own problems. Yeah, sure. To be sure. Um, but I mean, it, it, to me, that the, the whole question here is, uh, you know, what are all of the myriad effects when you when you say we're going to increase production by this marginal amount? And by all measures, it seems to me that this has been a really catastrophic situation. Mm-hmm. And now, um, at exactly at this moment, the, the the Food Safety and Inspection Service is. Uh, completing its analysis of, of how the, the pork-hemp pilot program went. And they insist that they have made no decisions, but all of my conversations with officials there, they staunchly defend w- w- what has happened. Um, and it seems to me that they are poised to approve this same system being implemented at 600-plus Pork plants uh, across the country,
1: not to mention poultry, because poultry is the other industry that is that is flirting with hemp in a big
2: bad way. Yeah, and it's—I mean, poultry has really taken the lead and is and Mm -hmm. is ahead of pork, but pork appears to be poised to go down exactly that same path. And really, the, the the point I'm trying to make is, you know, by looking essentially at at two processing plants and all of the incredible detrimental effects that have happened from just beating up the line in those two places. What's going to happen when we do the same at 600 or more plants nationwide?
1: A chilling thought, my friend, and there we must end. Um, I want to thank you again, Ted Genoways, for joining me today. I do hope you'll come back very soon because I do want to talk more about immigration and union busting and stuff like that. Um, And I urge people to go. You have a website?
2: Uh, I do not, but uh, But I'll I'll get right on that. (laughs)
1: Yes, get one, get right on it, dude. Because you got to make one for your book. I it will, will be called will. the chain. i have
2: one by then. I swear. Chain,
1: do it now, man. Do it. Now. I'm a former book publicist. Trust me, the, your publisher will do almost nothing to help you. The <laughs> chain, farm, factory, and the fate of our food. Yes, we'll talk about that another time. Thank you so much for you listening. Thanks for joining me today on this program, and thanks to my sponsor, Cane Vineyard. See you next week, folks.